This is Gesher, the podcast that's bridging the gap between the Jewish and evangelical Christian communities with conversations that matter. Here's your host, Ty Perry, with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. Hello, everyone. I want to welcome you to this episode of Gesher, the first in a series, a new series of episodes on the various branches or movements of rabbinic Judaism. Well, today we're going to begin with a conversation about Reform Judaism. And I'm saying Reform, not Reformed, uh, with Rabbi Joe Klein. Rabbi Klein has served as the rabbi of congregations in Terre Haute, uh, Indiana, and in Chattanooga, Tennessee, before becoming rabbi of Temple Emmanuel in Oak Park in 1997. He retired as Rabbi Emeritus of Temple Emmanuel in 2013. Since 2015, Rabbi Klein has been the visiting rabbi of the Gross Point Jewish Council. He is currently adjunct faculty in the Religious Studies programs of Oakland University and Rochester University here in Michigan, and he teaches in the Metro Detroit Jewish Federation's Adult Education Program. And it's my delight to welcome him to this episode of Gesher. Rabbi, welcome. Uh, thank you. Happy to be here. Well, Rabbi, uh, as I, I mentioned, this is Reform Judaism, not Reformed. So if you're listening, uh, as far as I know, you're not a, a Calvinist uh, no, rabbi. No. Um, so Reform Judaism. I wanted to begin with talking about Reform Judaism because um, my, my understanding is that you really can't comprehend conservative or orthodox without understanding kind of what they're in a response to, which would be Reform Judaism. So uh, before we get to that, though, we have to make sure our listeners understand that there is a vast difference between what we would, might call biblical Judaism uh, in the Tanakh, or as Christians call the Old Testament, and the Judaism of today. So could you uh, briefly, if you can, just talk about the difference between biblical and rabbinic Judaism? Yeah. If, you know, basically, if all you know about Judaism is what you is what one would read in the Bible, whether it's Hebrew Scriptures or New Testament. If that's what you know about Judaism, then you don't know anything about Judaism. Mm. Uh, the, uh, uh, what becomes rabbinic Judaism uh, has its roots in the second century BCE, or BC, uh, with the arrival of a group called the Pharisees into Judea, Samaria, and the Galilee. And they brought with them a new understanding of, of revelation and what God wants of, of people. The standard or the uh, 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 basic Judaism of the day was based in the temple. Uh, people brought offerings, handed them over to the priests, the Levites, who offered them or gave them back to the petitioner or kept some for themselves or burned it up completely. But a religious practice was observed by bringing offerings to the temple, and the priesthood managed uh, that, uh, that system. Mm. Uh, the group that's called the Pharisees, of course, affirmed that because that's all biblical. But the Pharisees said, in addition to that, God, uh, in addition to that which we find in the written word of God— uh, Torah, the first five books of Scripture, in addition to the written word that God gave Moses, God also gave Moses an oral Torah, an oral revelation that explains all of the written. So yes, you have to bring your offerings, but in addition to the, uh, uh, those offerings, God also wants you to eat a certain way, to dress a certain way, to observe festivals a certain way, all in addition to the sacrificial cult. 
Now, the, the priesthood, the Sadducees, who were running the cult, you know, uh, declared that this was all a fabrication by the Pharisees. The Pharisees said, no, it's not a fabrication. God told Moses, and Moses told Joshua, and Joshua told the heads of the tribes, and we're the inheritors of that tradition. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees were at each other over what, really God, what God really wants us to do. Well, after the year 70, 70 CE, uh, or AD, uh, with the Roman destruction of Judea, there's no more temple. Mm-hmm. There's no more active priesthood. There's no more way of bringing offerings. And it leaves the Pharisees as the only player on the field uh, that offered a way to experience or express one's uh, covenant with God. And the rabbis, I'm sorry, the Pharisees, after the year 70 become the rabbis. Mm. So everything that is in our Jewish world today is an outgrowth of the rabbinic Judaism that was first introduced by the Pharisees uh, 200 some years before Jesus, but introduced by the Pharisees becoming rabbinic Judaism and and uh, all of the different communities that we see in, in uh, our culture today are all offsprings of that rabbinic um, proposition. Mm. So from the destruction of the temple in 70 um, on through the centuries, you have certainly developments in Judaism, but you probably wouldn't have what we would call today movements or branches. Is that, would that be right? I, no, I think that there were. There, there were, were certainly developments. There were certainly reformations. Okay. If we're talking about uh, uh, different reformations, that certainly the, the, the Protestant Reformation. <laughs> uh, well, we had reformations too. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were uh, philosophers that, I mean, it, 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 in the time, in the first century, Philo, uh, a rabbinic Jew in Alexandria, redefined what scripture and revelation meant. Mm-hmm. That was a reformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, Maimonides offered a reformation. Spinoza, uh, a few centuries later, uh, the uh, Hasidic movement was a reform, was a reformation. Uh, and in the 19th century, reform becomes a reformation. So there have been a number of attempts to transform uh, what Judaism is and ought to be in, in relation to one's current culture or the, uh, the, um, the needs of the people at a certain time. Mm. Well, Reform Judaism certainly was a, a quite a shift in thinking at that time. So let's go there. Okay. Um, tell us about the, the historical emergence of Reform Judaism. Uh, where did it happen? When did it happen? Go from there. Uh, it begins in the very early 1800s in Germany. Uh, and the Rabbi Isaac Jacobson, is the, it's the first identified Reform congregation. Uh, he said to his folks, uh, our sermons should not be in Hebrew, uh, they should be in German, hmm. that a mixed choir is, uh, in a, is a, um, a nice addition to worship. Uh, in the traditional community, uh, women are not part of worship, and certainly not in a choir. And so his addition of a mixed choir with an organ as well, hmm. uh, and mixed seating, families sitting together, uh, that was uh, a rather drastic transformation. And it begins in the very early 1800s. It grows in Germany rather quickly. Uh, and when uh, German Jews started coming to America, in 
1840, maybe a little bit before, 1840, 1850, 1860, there's a large German-Jewish uh, emigration to America, and they brought with them Reform Judaism. Mm. Um, the Jewish community in America at that time was not particularly organized, uh, and the, the real identified transformation into a movement happens with uh, Rabbi uh, Isaac Mayer Wise, who comes to um, Cincinnati. He was, he's, brought, he's from Germany, uh, and he, his first two congregations, he, they uh, fired him. <laughs> um, but he came to Cincinnati in, uh, uh, in, in the 1850s, a little bit later, and as the rabbi of a major synagogue. And his intent was to create an organization of American Judaism. And he founded uh, uh, the, what he called the Union of American Hebrew Congregations. And his intent was that all of the synagogues, or the vast majority of the synagogues in America, would be part of this national American movement. Mm. Uh, the Orthodox community, the traditional community, was small and relatively scattered, certainly in the big cities, but, uh, but not in the hinterlands of the West or the South. And he organized this uh, group of um, uh, congregations. In 1873, 34 synagogues became part of this movement. He also founded in Cincinnati a seminary for a Hebrew Union College, the same language. And his intent was to form, to create an American Judaism responsive to American needs. What's interesting that it, by 1880, of the 200 largest synagogues in America, 1880, 200 largest synagogues, uh, 192 of them were reform. My goodness. The vast majority of synagogues in larger cities uh, were reform congregations. It was really an American movement. Mm -hmm. um, that changed with the beginning of uh, Eastern European immigration, 1880 to about 1920, uh, brought in um, more traditional Jews from uh, Eastern Europe, Russia, Czechoslovakia, Hungary. They were not particularly enamored of what these reformers were doing. Mm -hmm. uh, they were too much like, their synagogues were too much like churches. Uh, men and women sat together. There was an organ and there was a choir and uh, they didn't cover their heads and they didn't do some of the rituals that the traditional community wanted. And uh, with this large immigration, over two million Jews in the few years coming over, uh, it prompted the ultimate formation of the conservative movement mm. Uh, and then the organization of traditional or what we might call today Orthodox congregations. Now I have to ask, to, I guess to the Orthodox uh, point, is when, you, when you're talking about organs and, and these changes that are happening even in the services, is assimilation or maybe assimilation isn't the right word, but fitting in or blending in, is that part of the motivation or is this just a, a time of modernization for Judaism? Well, I think it's probably a little of both. I would call it a culturization. Okay. Uh, assimilation means you're, you're leaving where you were into something else. Um, I think part of it was uh, wanting to be... America was a brand new country. It was a land of opportunity. 
and particularly the German Jews coming over, really wanted to be part of the American success story. Mm -hmm. And in order to be part of the American success story, they needed to look and act and sound like Americans. Uh, they were doing business in, in large and small cities as shop owners, uh, for the most part, um, uh, and they wanted to be American. Uh, and so, as well, and by the way, it wasn't until, there were Jews in America uh, since 1654. First Jews arrived in America, 1654. There was not a full-time rabbi in America until the 1840s. Mm. All that time, communities were on their own to decide, you know, is this chicken okay to eat, and what do we do on this festival, and is this a violation of Sabbath laws? I mean, there were, there were no authorities until 1840, right. and those, those were German rabbis. Those were reformers. Mm. So um, uh, the, the uh, American culture, you know, it's, it's, it's such a magnetic force uh, to be part of America. And I think that was the, uh, we needed to be like it. We wanted to invite our Christian neighbors to services. Mm. Well, if men and women are separated, if the whole thing is in Hebrew, uh, my neighbors are not going to enjoy it very much. Sure. So we needed, we really needed to be as much like Americans as we can be, uh, still affirming a clear Jewish identity. Now, it's really taken root in the United States, or it, it did, especially at the beginning. Is it today quintessentially American, or do we see it in other countries where it's, has it really taken off in other nations as well? We see it other places, but it's a small minority. Okay. Uh, North America, Canada, United States, and Mexico, uh, not so much in Mexico, but certainly in Canada, have very large, strong, identified reform communities. Mm -hmm. uh, but outside of North America, there are going to be small communities that if there's any organization, it's going to be a long traditional Orthodox lines. Okay. Well, I want to go into some of maybe Reformed Judaism's distinctives. Um, a rabbi friend of mine often says when I say, well, what do, what do Jewish people believe about? He says, well, it depends on who you ask. So right. I'm, I'm assuming that that might apply to, to some of these. But I want to begin uh, by asking you about uh, Reformed Judaism or your view on the, the Torah, the Tanakh, uh, and for listeners, the Tanakh is the what we would Christians would call the Old Testament, as well as the Oral Torah. Do you view these as inspired? Um, if not, where do you think? What do you view them? Well, let as? me ask you: What do you mean by inspired? Well, by that I would mean uh, in the sense that the that God is the one who directed the whether it's Moses or the prophets to pen the words that he did down to the exact. Words, not just the ideas. Uh, so let me uh, go off on a, one of my uh, hobby horses sure. for a moment. Um, the uh, term inspired, the text is inspired, comes from Second Timothy. Mm -hmm. The only other place in all of uh, the Bible, both Hebrew Scripture and New Testament, other than Second Timothy, the only other place that we find the word inspired is in Genesis chapter 1. Mm -hmm. Inspire means breathed into. So the only other place God forms uh, this, this uh, 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 figure and breathes into it, I guess it's chapter 2, breathes into this feature, this creature, the breath of life, and it becomes the man. 
So if inspired means God breathed, it doesn't, the term does not necessarily mean perfect, nor does it mean divine, because if I and you are God-breathed, I'm not going to say I'm perfect. I mm-hmm. doubt that you would say you're perfect. No. But there is something about us in which the presence of God dwells. It doesn't mean we're perfect, but there, there's a presence there. Uh, there's a divine presence there. Okay. Um, so is Torah God-breathed? Yeah. I, I, Torah, uh, Torah, the first five books of Scripture, I don't believe that's what God gave Moses. I don't know what happened at Sinai. I wasn't there. <laughs> but there are too many places between Genesis and Deuteronomy where I see problems identifying it as God's speech. Uh, so, is it God-breathed? Yes, it's God-breathed. Torah has been the center, the foundation of the Jewish community for, well, 2,500 years for sure, uh, as that kind of revelation. Um, it, it has certainly been the focus. It has been the foundation. Uh, is it perfect? Is it directly from God? Is it divine in every sense? No, it's not. But it certainly is that first place that we go to to find um, uh, something of God's presence. In terms of the rest of Scripture, beyond Deuteronomy, Hebrew Scripture, beyond Deuteronomy, Jewish tradition has never said that it was divine or perfect. Jeremiah wrote the book of Jeremiah. Three authors apparently wrote uh, Isaiah. A number of people, maybe even David, wrote the Psalms. Uh, we have historians writing Joshua and First Kings and Second Kings and First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. Um, we have people writing those documents. Are they important? Absolutely. Uh, they've been part of our history for well over 2,000 years. Do we look to them to see what our ancestors, to begin to understand what our ancestors, how, how they understood their covenant with God? Yes. Uh, is it uh, so, uh, you know, the phrase, um, uh, it doesn't, the, the text uh, is not binding, but the text is certainly important and, okay. and important to know. So would you be, or, and I should say, would most of Reformed Judaism, the leaders at least, would they subscribe then to the, the documentary hypothesis of, of Genesis? And you kind of alluded to that with Isaiah, yes, yeah. assuming you would hold to that. Yeah, okay. I, I think so, assuming they know about it. Yeah. Uh, you also mentioned oral Torah. If if the written Torah is not absolute and divinely perfect as a written text, the oral Torah, as it's been passed down presumably from Moses mm-hmm. uh, uh, 3,500 years ago, uh, that's not that's even less divine. Sure. So it, it, the oral Torah is a record of how our ancestors understood their covenant. That's important for me to know, but it's not um, uh, it's not binding on me. Now, this is getting, I guess, more personal. Do you have a, a passage of Scripture um, that is particularly meaningful to you, that is uh, important to you in any way? Um, yeah, I, I mean, there are, in terms of its message, uh, I think the Holiness Code in Leviticus mm-hmm. uh, that lays out how we're supposed to treat each other. I, I find... Uh, the Holiness Code in, in chapter 19 of Leviticus, uh, just a, a powerfully said uh, statement. Um, my f- Genesis and Exodus are my favorite books to read. Mm. 
but I would say Leviticus um, is certainly at least the rest of Leviticus. You know, I don't care so much about, um, but the Holiness Code I think is really important. Sure. Now the idea of of chosenness has always been even from biblical times, a, a difficult thing for your people. Um, how do you understand that today, the idea of chosenness and uh, the Jewish people's role in the world like we live in today? Uh, you know, I hear two different understandings uh, of that notion. On the one hand, uh, I absolutely believe that, the, that uh, we are chosen. Um, if, for instance, in all of human history, no culture or society or or community has ever survived the, ulti- the 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 destruction of its capital of its political capital and its religious capital no culture has ever survived mm-hmm. that destruction we did it twice I, there is something special about the covenant that we find in hebrew scripture we find it expressed uh, later in Christianity, we find it later expressed in Islam. Uh, yeah, there is something that chose that God chose us to deliver this message so that it could become uh, these other uh, expressions of covenant. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, um, more commonly, I think we I hear said, we choose being chosen. We have chosen to be a part of this covenant. I choose to identify as a Jew. I choose to observe uh, those aspects of the Jewish heritage that set me apart from other people. I choose to do that. Mm-hmm. And what would you say the role of, of the Jewish people as a people is in the 21st century? Uh, that I don't know. That's beyond my pay grade. <laughs> um, I I think we have a responsibility to maintain the significance and importance of God's message uh, expressed in Torah, particularly expressed through the prophetic messages, the prophetic uh, um, uh, proclamations of do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God from Micah. Uh, I think we have a responsibility to uphold those notions in the hope that others will join us in, in those affirmations. Sure. Now, when it comes to the Messiah, um, I know under I understand in, in rabbinic Judaism there are various views uh, that it's a person, that it's an age. What is your view on on that? Well, the traditional community is very clear; it is a person. Mm-hmm. There will be a person uh, who, who uh, God has appointed, not unlike God's appointment of Moses. Uh, and this Messiah, like Moses, will deliver miracles. It'll, um, I mean, God's doing it, but, but the Messiah will be the agent, the vehicle. Uh, and with that arrival, our world will be transformed. There will be no more evil. There's no more labor. It will be a resurrection of the righteous dead. Our world will be utterly transformed forever, for good, uh, a, a garden of Eden. That is the traditional notion. Um, I don't know that there are many folks in my congregation that believes that there will be a person. Mm. Uh, And in fact, we even see in the traditional community and aspects of the traditional community the statement, the Messiah won't come until we we prepare the way for the Messiah. 
Uh, in other words, we need to do the work. You're post-millennial in a Christian in a uh, Christian it very world much view. Yeah. absolutely post-millennial. Mm-hmm. Um, that we need to do the work. Uh, do I expect there to be a person who will come and and do that? No, it's beyond it's beyond my experiential knowledge. Everything that I I know about this world, it violate it violates that. Uh, could I be wrong? Sure, I could be wrong. Uh, and I will be the first one to apologize to God if if, if I'm wrong, uh, but I don't expect I don't expect there to be a person who will come. Now I met you uh, through an unusual class, one that I've I've really enjoyed uh, that you've taught through the Detroit Jewish Community Center called "Reading Paul with a Rabbi," and you could understand I was intrigued and a little surprised that there'd be a rabbi teaching the epistles of Paul. Um, so in, in, in hearing your teaching, I understand that you are not a, uh, an adherent to the idea of Jesus being the Messiah. Who do you say Jesus is? I mean, what, what role does he, certainly doesn't probably play a role in your life, but when you think of him as an individual, who is he? Uh, well, there's no question in my mind that there was a Jesus. Um, you hear occasionally, well, Jews say, well, he was a prophet. No, he wasn't a prophet. A prophet is someone not who foretells the future, uh, but who understands how God works. It's a, and it's a term that's uh, uh, relegated specifically to what we find in Hebrew Scripture. Mm-hmm. Was he a real person? Uh, no doubt he was. Uh, a preacher, a healer, maybe. A charismatic leader, certainly. Um, Beyond, beyond that, I don't have any opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is evidence uh, uh, for there is evidence that he was a person that we find even in rabbinic literature. Scant, not much, but there's scant evidence that uh, that in by the third, second, third century, there were rabbis talking about. Well, there was this guy that uh, people believe was the Messiah. Uh, if I believed that Jesus was the Messiah, I'd be Christian. Right. Uh, uh, but I certainly have no problem affirming that he was a real person. To what extent was he a healer as described in the Gospels? Mm, that's a little bit beyond my ability to grasp. Sure. Uh, but certainly a reformer, uh, certainly uh, uh, an important presence in that Roman-occupied world. Well, you spent a lot of time studying the New Testament. Um, what is your view on the New Testament, and you know, especially as it concerns accuracy. Uh, what's your take? Well, I'm fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by uh, uh, the, the texts that are there. Um, uh, you know, the Gospels are the only record, the only Christian record we have of what's happening in first century Judea. And, and the problem is that reading the Gospels, there's virtually no mention of that Roman occupation. Uh, a serious oppression by the Romans. Uh, reading uh, any of the four Gospels, particularly the Synoptic Gospels, there was, you have no idea that that's what's really happening mm-hmm. uh, under Roman occupation. So the Gospels really don't tell us much about the history of that period. Uh, I think Paul does. Paul tells us a lot about what's going on from the, from the Jesus community's perspective of the middle first century. Paul doesn't tell us anything about Judaism, uh, because his he his message is foreign to uh, the uh, uh, the pagan community, uh, bringing them uh, uh, to uh, to to the risen Christ. So, but I'm fascinated in how the 
uh, a church began, mm-hmm. fascinated that it grew so quickly from, I mean, Paul is operating in the early 50s, late 40s maybe, but certainly early 50s. Um, the Jewish believing, the Jewish Jesus community dies out. They disappear by the year 100, mm-hmm. um, leaving only uh, non-Jews, pagan, formerly pagans, uh, as the what's called the Gentile church. How it grew so quickly, I, I'm amazed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that it grew quickly certainly was a problem uh, for the Jewish community, yes. the rabbinic community, in the first two centuries. They were competing for the same converts. Uh, the, Jew, the, the rabbis in the early church were competing for the same converts and so did not have nice things to say about each other. Uh, I, I, I find that early conflict very interesting. Um, so, the, the, and and because you know, I think of uh, Christianity as um, I think of Christianity as a as a highway, as a as a an interstate highway in Kansas, in which there are two roads going off into the same flat direction. Uh, it looks like. They merge in the horizon, but we know they don't merge. Mm. But they travel the same territory. Mm-hmm. They have the same uh, uh, issues affecting them, and they're traveling together. Uh, and it looks like, it, at least in terms of their expectations, that they arrive at the very same place. And that's good enough for me, mm. that, 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 that our expectations, our hopes, our desires are that we arrive at the same place. I know we won't get there, but it's, it, it helps one side to know what the other side is going through. Mm-hmm. And so in, instead of uh, talking about a separation of the Jewish community from the Christian community, I think, really think we have a lot uh, to teach each other. Uh, a lot of the issues are common issues. And it's okay if we disagree about some things. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Now, when you say we're, we're, we arrive at the same place, it what do you mean by that? It, it appears that way. that way. What do you think that place is? I mean, are you talking the, the world to come, or are you talking a, a more peaceful world? What do you? I don't know. Okay. I look at the horizon, and it looks like we get there, but I know we don't get there. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that they're going to be parallel. Mm-hmm. I, I, I attended a lecture once by an Orthodox rabbi, uh, from Germany, in fact, uh, who said that the uh, he, that I don't agree with him, uh, but he said the uh, you know the only difference between Jews and Christians is that when uh, uh, for Jews when the Messiah comes the Jews will say welcome, and the Christians will say welcome back, <laughs> and, and he said that's the only difference between us. Now I, I don't I don't buy that at all. Uh, there are a lot of differences. Right, that's a simplistic. It's very simplistic, view. but it's uh, you know it's interesting. Yeah. Well, moving to uh, kind of the, the international political scene, when it comes to the state of Israel uh, and Zionism, what are the, the various views maybe in, in the reform movement today? I know that the, uh, it can be rocky sometimes for the reform community in Israel. Uh, what do you have to say about the, the relationship there? Well, uh, if I were to um, uh, emigrate to Israel, uh, I would not, my rabbinic ordination would not be recognized. Mm. Uh, my Judaism would be. They would recognize me as a Jew because I can prove it, I guess. Mm. 
uh, but my ordination would not be recognized. Uh, liberal synagogues are called progressive in Israel, but they're reform. Uh, uh, progressive synagogues are not recognized uh, by the state, do not get support by the state. Um, a reform rabbi or conservative rabbi cannot marry, cannot bury, cannot cannot uh, uh, lead someone through conversion. Uh, their, their rabbinical status is simply not, not recognized. Mm. So it's, it's a little fraught with uh, a, a little bit of antagonism there. Um, the... The notion of Zionism, though, is not limited to the Jewish community. I mean, we're talking, I'm sure, all the time about Christian Zionists. I'm a Zionist, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I certainly have no problem with that. Um, there are certainly folks that would say, if you're a Zionist, you have to live in Israel. Mm. You know, that if, if you're a Zionist and if you think that this is uh, an important uh, nation to support and uphold, then you need to live there. You know, a lot of Israelis will say that. I don't believe it. I think one can be a Zionist, uh, as I as I would affirm I am. Uh, I think we can be in a Zionist regardless of where we live and, and regardless of our of our faith community. Mm. You know, if one supports uh, it supports the state of Israel, in, in and particularly today with all of its serious problems. I mean, it I, I it's I find very sad the right wing what's happening uh, with the right wing in Israel. Very sad and disappointing and um, uh, upsetting. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I would still, I mean, I would still take routes to Israel. I have taken tours. I still support Israel. You know, despite what they're doing, what she's doing to herself. <laughs> well, I want to close with this. Uh, the Jewish people are, of course, known as the people of the book. And I think to some extent, uh, the, the Christian community has inherited some of that heritage. Uh, certainly love the, the word. Um, but I want to ask you about a book in particular besides the, the Bible. Um, has there been a book that you've read that has influenced your theological views or your, your worldview significantly? What is that? Um, I, there's one that has significantly influenced my theology, and there's one that has significantly influenced my identity. Uh, the theology is a, a very thin little book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Mm. Uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote it, I think, in the 60s. Mm -hmm. uh, not why bad things happen to good people, but when bad things happen. Uh, I've always told my congregation that that book should be on e in every single home. It should be read every two or three years. Uh, I, I, he's a conservative rabbi, still alive, I think, um, and he details how do we deal with this, with the reality that in fact bad things do happen to good people. Where is God in all of this? How do how do, are we supposed to understand that if we are uh, part of uh, God's covenant people? Mm -hmm. So th that's a really really important book. Uh, the other one is a novel, uh, and it's called As a Driven Leaf. It's written by, uh, he's now dead, Rabbi Milton Steinberg. It's one of the few books he ever wrote. And it's about the uh, second century, uh, the rabbinic community in the second century. And he takes uh, 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 people who are, are mentioned in Talmud and in rabbinic literature, and he builds this story about them using material from rabbinic literature, assuming that these were real people anyway. And it's a great, great novel that really challenges one's understanding of um, 
revelation and relationship with God and covenant. It's just a really, really good book. Well, Rabbi, I want to thank you for coming on Gesher today and for talking with us about Reformed Judaism. I hope uh, you listeners uh, have benefited from understanding a little bit better what rabbinic uh, Judaism is and specifically what Reformed Judaism is as a movement. So thank you, Rabbi. You're very welcome. You've been listening to Gesher, a ministry outreach production of FOI Equip, your free resource for learning and engaging with the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. To learn more, visit foiequip.org. And for more information about Thai, visit foi.org forward slash Perry. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom.